0: Good morning. morning. We are so glad you're here. I want to introduce you to Dan and Kim Long. Say hello, if you would. So so we've been having a series of conversations about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And uh, these are two of our folk that are doing some amazing things in the midst of their neighborhood. So we just invited them to share a bit at all of our services. And... um, and so, would you share, Dan, just a little bit about what it looks like for you to kind of have woken up to your neighborhood and all that sits right there next to you? Okay.
1: Well, waking up is a good way to say it, because we lived in our neighborhood for about 15 years, and we were friends with our neighbors, and we know our neighbors, but we, needed, we felt the need to be more intentional and in building those relationships, and also in just getting to, uh, to know them more and be more available to them and to make ourselves available to them for whatever the reason. So we thought about how do you do that? Uh, we've been there a long time. How do you start that now? Yeah. So we connected with some of our friends in our neighborhood and we prayed about it and we thought about it and we decided that we wanted to for sure have the kids be a part of this because it's something that we want them to grow into as well. And so we decided we would just take the hospitality that's in our home that we couldn't fit a whole lot of people into and take it out into our yard. Yeah. And so we decided to have our first little event in our neighborhood and uh, have a root beer float night.
0: That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Anything that involves ice cream?
1: That's right. Sugar. Sugar's good. Sugar's done. good. So we, uh, we went around the neighborhood with the kids. We invite, made personal invitations to everyone in the neighborhood. And to our surprise, we had about 50 people show up in our front yard. It's awesome. And so we were pulling on the root beer tab and filling ice cream cups for a few hours, had great deep conversations with people, getting to know people better. Uh, and then they said, well, you're going to do something else. We said, sure. <laughs> uh, I don't know what. So uh, here comes the winter months. And so we had a hot chocolate night. And that night... It was, we, were, we were blessed because people that came, had, that had come before, showed up with food and had made things and just came to participate and, and, and get together. And we had, again, had great conversations. We had fire pits out front, so it was nice. And we stayed until the late, late evening. And then uh, one of the, the families that we're partnering with has also since then had an open house at their home and invited
0: everybody to come by and, well, and just join in. What have you seen happen, Kim? What's been, what's been going on? What are some things that have borne fruit in the neighborhood?
2: Well, I, I definitely think the fruit's been born in us. Um, just being able to enjoy people that we wouldn't have connected with before. So See, like
0: I said, what, what's the fruit born in you um, <laughs> from this?
2: That's what you meant. I know. Well, both ways. It's just been a blessing. It's been fun to watch our kids be involved and do something with them. And I'll be honest, this has been more fun than it has been a chore in every way. It's been natural, it's been easy, and it's been a great uh, journey for us to try and get creative, and like Dan said, just to be more available. And uh, so when we first passed out that flyer, the the tag on it was, come junior, come senior, come in betweener. And really, we were so blessed to find that we had a great mix of people at of different ages at both events. We had the strollers and we had the walkers. And they came and uh, some of the kids that wouldn't normally have come out and been in our yard or been in our home were there running around. And uh, some of the older folks who told stories and talked about our neighborhood and the things that used to be and the way things community were in the past were just a true blessing to us. One gentleman who lives across the street who we've uh, known for years, cared for dearly, doesn't know the Lord, but he's softened a great deal over the last year. And uh, he didn't want to come to our root beer float night. He got out of the car and he was a little grumpy that night. and He said, Kim, I'm not going to make it. I don't feel like it. He said, come on, just have a root beer with us. He stayed. He had five. He was one of the last to leave. A great guy. And, you know, we've, we've really seen him uh, soften with us over the last few months. He's uh, watched one of his parents pass away. We were able to serve him in that funeral in his home where a ton of neighbors came. And we were able to just work behind the scenes and bless him and be a part of that. Awesome. No agenda. Just loving on him. And uh, over the last couple months, we've expanded our idea to... Um, Work with some friends on doing a car wash night. On Sunday nights, we get together as families. We have food, we have fellowship. The men work a lot harder than the women, I'll be honest. They set goals for how many cars they can wash, and it's not just ours, which is fun to start the week off with a clean car, but they'll wash anybody who's around who walks over with their vehicle. So sometimes it's a widow, sometimes it's a woman who's been left by her husband. Um, all kinds of people who just want to be together on a Sunday night and it's been a great experience for us and the neighborhood has gotten smaller we're seeing more people talk about it more people commune about it we've had an open house inviting all kinds of people to come and just bless one of our friends who opened their entire home to over 100 people so actually it's been easy it's been great it's been a blessing for us
0: awesome you guys Go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, uh, thanks for listening to I me. Mean, we just wanted to share with you our heart that like, this is how we follow Jesus
0: right now. So Amen. Amen, you guys. Thank you. All right, let's pray. Let's pray over these two. So, in the same way that we commissioned short term missionaries, Uh, overseas we commission them into a long-term investment into their neighborhood and we want to continually put on display folks that are just like everybody else imperfect and works in progress who simply see part of the responsibility of following jesus as bearing the good news in word and in deed so let's pray over them very quickly because we got a sermon we got a sermon to get to no no that what that yeah (laughs) they wish that was it um (laughs) Father, we thank you uh, for this couple and this family and the ways in which you have woken them up to all that is around them. We pray, Father, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and that you would give them great favor in the eyes of their neighbors, that you would give them wisdom when to speak, when to listen. But most of all, Father, that you would, through their grace and tangible acts of service, call people to follow you and that many would come to know you as a result of this intentionality. We pray in the name of Jesus, Amen. amen. Thank you guys so much. All right, bless you. I'm just hugging Dan. Just Dan gets a hug. Nothing, nothing for you. All right. Let's go to uh, the book of Leviticus this morning. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 11. We'll hit Luke later on. If you're new to our community... Um, we're big fans of, of seeing the whole story. So we're, we're kind of plodding our way through the Gospel of Luke. But to do that often, uh, there's Old Testament background we want to study. This is one of those times where we're going to spend about 10 minutes in Leviticus. And it's going to be glorious. You, you are never going to love Leviticus more than you are this morning. It's going to be fantastic. Now, one of the very central questions that, that the Judaisms of the first century were wrestling with is how do we deal with the fact that we are back in the land, and yet we are oppressed by pagan Gentile rulers? The the restoration of Israel back to the promised land was only partial in the sense that, yes, they were physically there, but they were still oppressed uh, by the Romans and the puppet kings that the Romans would install. And and so there were lots of different answers. Some advocated separation into monk-like communities into the desert. Some advocated armed revolt. Some just said, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, But we met a crew last week called the Pharisees, who advocated a different kind of program in response to this question. And, And very often in church circles, the Pharisees get typecast as the villains. But the truth is a bit more complex than that. So we want to study a bit of their theology this morning. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. Now, uh, Leviticus is one of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law, the teaching. And, And all over the place is the following admonition. Verse 44, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves Israel and be holy. Because I, your God, am holy. So this be holy because I am holy is all over the book of Leviticus. The instructions I'm giving you are intended for you to display holiness in the same way I display holiness. Flip over to chapter 19, verse 1. This admonition to be holy because I am holy is all over. Here's just another example of it. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. All right, so there was a connection between the people's holiness and God's holiness. He was holy, therefore, there to be holy. Now, there was another connection between their holiness and something else. Flip over to chapter 20. We've got to go through this relatively quickly. Chapter 20, verse 22. Their holiness was connected to the holiness of God, but their holiness was also connected to their continued existence in the promised land. So, chapter 20, verse 22. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the promised land, this land I'm giving you, will not vomit you out. So, why do you keep the commands and decrees? Well, we're holy because God is holy, but there was another reason too. Because if you want to live in this promised land, you have to be holy, lest the land expel you. Okay? So, holy because God is holy. Holy in the land. Flip over to chapter 25. The same thing is said there. Chapter 25, verse 18. It says, follow my decrees... And be careful to obey my laws, and you will live what? Safely in the land. Now, here's what the Pharisees did with this. To the Pharisee mind, the reason Israel got exiled generations earlier or a generation earlier was because they weren't holy. So what's the answer to how we get God to deal with the Romans? What's the answer? Be holy. So this was a group that sought to intensify adherence to the commands, the 613 commands of the Torah. And the way that they did that, we talked about it last week, is that they, build, they built fences around the command. So if one of like, let's say one of the 10 commandments was do not touch the black table. Well, they would have a command that said, don't get within five feet of the black table. Or maybe they'd add a command that said, don't even look at the black table. And the idea was, by obeying these fenced commands, you wouldn't even get close to breaking the big one. Now, for the Pharisees, they had a very specific understanding of what holiness required. So, jump back to chapter 15. Holiness, what did that mean exactly? How, if the call was, be holy... Because God is holy, and be holy so that you can live in the promised land. How do you do that? What's that look like? Well, negatively, verse uh, 31 of chapter 15, it says this. You must keep the Israelites, and what's your Bible say? Separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. So, What does holiness mean negatively? It means separation. In fact, the Pharisees' name came from either an Aramaic word or a Hebrew word or some combination of both that meant separate ones. So the Pharisees saw the problem, we're not holy enough. So what's the answer? Be holy. That will allow us to live in the land and deal with the Romans. Well, what's holiness look like? Well, first, negatively, it looks like being separate from anything that's not holy. And then secondly, flip over to chapter 18. Almost done. Chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person that obeys them will live by them, says the Lord. Okay. Big question. How come God is letting his chosen people be ruled by people that don't worship him? Lots of different answers. Pharisees' answer was, well, we weren't holy, so God kicked us out of the land. Now we're back in the land, but we're still ruled by pagans, so what's the answer? Be more holy. How do you do that? Negatively, holiness demands separation from anything unclean. And positively, holiness demands complete obedience to the law. To not only the 613 commands of the Old Testament, but all of the rules, the traditions, and the regulations the Pharisees added. Are you with me so far on this? The Pharisees believed Israel needed renewed. So they called Israel to repentance. What did repentance look like? It looked like intensification of the law. Why? To be holy because God is holy. To be holy so we can live in the land. That meant to be separate from all that's unholy. And to fully obey Torah. Now go to Isaiah chapter 25. This is a different piece of background that we need. Isaiah chapter 25. There are many different images. In the Old Testament scriptures. Of what life will be like. In the age to come. When God's will is done on earth. As it is in heaven. And. One of my favorites, and one of the most preeminent, is that of a banquet or a feast. And so, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the people. The sheet that covers up all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So, one of the images of what God was going to do is that there was going to be a big old meal. Now, all of this relates to the Pharisees in the following respect a meal for them was never just a meal. In the first century, in Jesus' day, t- something called table fellowship, who you ate with, how you ate with them, and what you ate, where you ate, table fellowship was an expression of two things. Number one, it was an expression of Israel's future hope to share a banquet with God. But it was also an expression of Israel's commitment to, to holiness. So for the Pharisees, who you ate with, where you ate, and how you ate were central to dealing with the Romans. So for the Pharisees, if you wanted to eat in a way that honored God, here's what you had to do. What does holiness mean negatively? Separation. So, you could not eat with anybody who was unclean. You could not eat any food that was unclean. And you could not eat food that had not been prepared in a manner that was clean. So, separation. Positively, what did holiness mean? Obedience to Torah. So, what the Pharisees did is they took the commands given to the priests in Leviticus about how to eat some of the sacred offerings, and the state of purity required to do that at the temple, and they applied them to everybody everywhere in Israel because they argued, hey, doesn't it say in Exodus that we're a kingdom of priests? Therefore, all the priestly requirements for eating need to be performed by everybody in Israel everywhere. Why? So that God would see our holiness deal with the Romans. And then the last thing they required is that the law demands absolute tithing of every bit of food. Even your spices, they would demand you tithe. Anything that grows up from the ground, you have to tithe it before you can eat it. Now, are you with me so far? I know it's kind of like, wow, this is dazzling stuff, Mike. Appreciate it. It was early this morning, tough to get up, so I was hoping to find out how to be married well. Well, this this is going to tell you. Absolutely, all right? So just hang on. Not really. Go to Luke chapter 5. Not really. Luke chapter 5. Oh, now we get cooking. Jesus, he's in trouble again. We're we're beginning to see a theme. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, so what was the after this? Well, last week it was Jesus uh, healing a paralyzed guy. And this section of Luke is all based around Jesus' inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4 where he announces the program to preach good news to the poor. And the poor is anybody, marginalized, outcast, the misfits, the, the lame, the blind, the sick. I mean, all of the people deemed unfit for the kingdom by the religious establishment, Jesus is running after those folks. So he's casting out demons, and he's healing the sick, and he touches a leper, and he heals a paralytic. And it says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. We know him uh, by Matthew. Saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, we've covered a bit of this. How popular were tax collectors? No. In later rabbinic writings, okay, okay, that we think reflect first century attitudes. One of, one, of the, one of the rabbis argued that if a tax collector enters your home, your home and everything in it is automatically unclean. In fact, tax collecting was one of the seven despised occupation occupations in later rabbinic Judaism. Because tax collecting meant a bit of background first. Rome demanded tribute from all of its conquered nations. Rome ruled at this time through Herod the Great initially and then through Herod the Great's sons. Israel was divided into three or four different territories, depending on how you count, ruled by these different sons. And every time you would take produce or fish or whatever from one territory to another, you had to pay a toll just to go into that part. Okay, so some estimate, besides temple taxes and tithing, you were were down 40% of your income. Right? On top of what the Torah demanded, Rome demanded its share. And Levi was a Jewish man who enforced that oppression personally. So Levi would be sitting there, and if you caught fish, you'd have to pay tax. If you were, were, um, you know, had wine or olives, you would pay a toll. And so here's Matthew at his toll booth, okay? The Pharisees would have looked at a guy like this and said, he's a collaborationist because he's somebody that sold out Judaism to oppress other Jews. So picture, if you would, you live in Nazi-occupied France during the Second World War. You're Jewish The SS is going around collecting your friends and your family to put them in extermination camps. The only people you hate more than the SS officers would be anybody who was Jewish who was helping them, right? So there was a hatred of these guys. They were notoriously dishonest. They could extort you. So if Levi was required to collect 10 denarii, let's say, he could collect 12 and keep the extra two and there was nothing you could do about it and he was surrounded by gentiles ceremonially unclean and in later rabbinic writing they said it is impossible to lead tax collectors to repentance so here's jesus he's gathering a band of followers so he's already met a fisherman who's just kind of a common fisherman who admits him you know by his own admission is a sinful man After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, which is the invitation. Levi got up, left everything and followed. Then Levi, now, so this is a great honor. Here's Jesus. He's kind of well known at this point. And instead of trusting the label tax collector and disregarding Levi completely, he sees Levi. The word here, he saw Levi. He observed Levi. And he says, come follow me. And Levi says, okay. I'm sure the interaction was more than that, but that was the result. He left everything and followed. Now, that was a great public honor that a teacher like Jesus would invite Levi to follow. So Levi, in an honor and shame culture, honors Jesus the only way he knows how, by throwing a party. Verse 29, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. So this is the tax collector's house and a large crowd of tax collectors, Because tax collectors could only hang out with tax collectors. Everybody else didn't want a thing to do with these guys. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So here is Jesus of Nazareth sharing a meal with people like this. Now, in light of Leviticus and in light of Isaiah, what was a meal? Well, a meal was where you you embodied purity. A meal was where you were picturing what the messianic banquet to be would look like. And in the Pharisees' mind, only the Pharisees would be there. And here's the Messiah. They don't know that yet. And here's Jesus sitting and eating with them. Sharing a meal with somebody in the first century meant that you accepted them, that you invited them, that you shared social status with them. See, if you if you refused to eat with somebody, that was a way of saying you did not approve of them. Eating with somebody was a way of saying, I welcome them in. And so the Pharisees, can you imagine the Pharisees? Well, did they tithe their food? Did they ceremonially wash their hands? It's a tax I mean, they're ritually unclean. You, Jesus, are unclean by being just being there, let alone eating a meal with these guys. See, Jesus was subverting in the Pharisees' mind The whole program about how to deal with Rome. He was bringing shame to God, they thought, (coughs) by associating with people like this. Do you see that? A a meal for them wasn't just a meal. It was a whole social category. It was a religious duty to be holy because holiness was separation. So... Verse 30, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained. Of course they complained. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And notice the other word, and sinners. So sinners was one category and tax collectors had their own category, all right? Now, when we hear the word sinner, we read it through the book of Romans. Sinner means everybody who's transgressed the the law of God, everyone who's fallen short. And that's true. In Jesus' world, though, a sinner was something a bit more specific. A sinner was the word you used to describe, the Pharisees would describe, to, to describe the people who didn't follow the program of the Pharisees, okay? So the Pharisees described themselves as righteous, and they described everybody else as sinners, So for them, it was not hypocritical to say, why do you eat with sinners? Because that was the name of the group that he was eating with. Now Jesus, oh, Jesus. So they asked the disciples, Jesus answers, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now that was just a well-known Hellenistic sort of saying. Do sick people need more sick people? No. No. Sick people need a doctor. So if you're a doctor, who do you have to hang out with? Sick people. Now notice what he's saying. Holiness isn't separation. Holiness for Jesus is association. The doctor has to go where the sick people are. And a good doctor isn't contaminated by their sickness. In fact, he brings healing. Oh, now this, this is calling into question the entire Pharisaic program. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the righteous were the Pharisees' designation for themselves. The sinners were the designation of everybody else. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, Levi, he's exactly the kind of person I'm looking for in my movement. Oh, really? I mean, so let's say Jesus is walking the earth. And after 9-11, in the couple of weeks after 9-11, you see him on the TV eating with Taliban members. Washing the feet of Osama bin Laden. I mean, whatever offense, whatever crazy Jesus would never do that situation. Just entertain it for a moment. And the indignation you would have That was what they were feeling towards Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I'm sorry, you're right. Nope. Guys, holiness isn't separation. Holiness is association. And what Luke has been building to is the following point. Jesus is clean, trumps every other unclean. Right? We made this point several times. He touches a leper. It was thought that the unclean infected the clean. That says it in Leviticus. Leviticus. The Pharisees, it's all over Leviticus. If you're pure, the way you stay pure is by not contacting anything impure. And here's Jesus touching impure stuff all over the place and winning. Him not being defiled. And then he says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So, why is Jesus sharing meals with people? What's he doing? He's calling people to repentance. Now, this is the part we miss. The Pharisees wanted to call the people to repentance, and they did that through separation. Jesus had the same goal to call people to repentance, but the way he did it was by sitting with them at mealtime. See, Jesus held something in tension that it's almost impossible for us to try and figure out. How do you display indiscriminate and reckless love and grace? And in so doing, call people to repentance. See, we think calling people to repentance is, here's all the bad news. And here's Jesus calling people to repentance, but doing it by sitting with the very people who are considered the worst in their society. I mean, do you see the different visions of what Israel should be, the Pharisees and Jesus? And that is why they were so threatened by just the simple act of sharing a meal. You read this story and you go, what's the big deal, man? Well, for them, everything was riding on purity. And here's Jesus disregarding all of their traditions. Now, at the mention of repentance, who has been preaching repentance in the book of Luke? Do you remember? John the Baptist, gold stars for you. John the Baptist, and Cindy, great to have you in the front row again. she's been wandering around and my sermon chi is off whenever you're not right there. Now, John the Baptist preached repentance. And do you remember John's approach to preaching repentance? Hey, you children of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The axe is at the root of the trees. Bear fruit of repentance. Be baptized. Kind of a harsh, imminent judgment sort of thing so the minute the pharisees hear jesus mention repentance they bring up john so this next section isn't a something new even though my bible has a paragraph break and a a different topic No, no 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 you brought up repentance so they ask john's disciples often fast and pray and so do the disciples of the pharisees but yours go on eating and drinking See, for John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, repentance looked like fasting and praying and offering sacrifice at the temple and public confession of sin. And here's Levi who's repenting of his entire lifestyle and throws a party. And there's Jesus. So one of the very interesting dynamics at play is for the Pharisees, repentance looked like mourning. For Jesus, repentance looked like celebrating. Jesus will tell stories in Luke chapter 15. Hey, when the prodigal son comes home, you throw a party. When you find the lost coin or the lost sheep, you throw a party. See, following Jesus for you is just this awful burden because he might send you to China or something like that. You're not following the real thing. And so all of this is called into question. So Jesus does a little judo. Yours go on eating and drinking. He says, hey, speaking of eating and drinking, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast when he's with them? In other words, at a, par, at, a, at a wedding, which is more appropriate? Fasting or feasting? Feasting? Well, the bridegroom's here. Everything you've been fasting for and yearning for for generations is in your midst. There will be a time to fast, but it is not now. And then he tells them this really confusing parable. I'm sure they understood it, but... No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old one. In other words, you ruin them both. If you cut a hole, if you're trying to fix a hole in an old pair of pants, you don't take new pants, cut them up to try to fix the hole it won't match. Similarly... No one pours new wine into old wineskins. New wine is still fermenting. Old wineskins are brittle and not flexible and can't accommodate the expansion. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skin. So if you put new wine into old wineskins, you ruin both. If you take a patch of a new garment and put it on an old garment, you ruin both. The wine will run out, the wineskins will be ruined. New, no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now that makes total sense, doesn't it? Now, there's a lot of debate over what in the world is Jesus saying here? Because when it comes to wine, old is better, Right? So is he making a judgment on the old or on the new? And there's all kinds of things that, and guesses that we make. But here's my best attempt. The context is the Pharisees complaining at the kind of table associates Jesus is inviting and fellowshipping with. And so I think what Jesus is saying, the point of the parables is that there's an incompatibility between the new and the old. Right, Because the new wine doesn't go with the old wineskins, and the new garment doesn't work with the old garment. And I think what he's saying is the Pharisee program of holiness through separation simply cannot accommodate the thing that Jesus is doing by summoning sinners like Levi to be part of the movement. In order to follow Jesus, in other words, you're going to have to abandon the old wine which you think is better in order to embrace this new thing that God is doing. Now, people would disagree with that, but I think it fits the context. Now, question becomes, why does any of this matter? A couple of thoughts. First thought, the Pharisees and Jesus had competing visions for how to be the people of God. Would you agree? Okay, four of us are in cahoots. We now, in American culture... As we perceive America to grow in darkness, we now have competing visions for how American Christians should be American Christians. And and it seems to me that there is a, a, a party that advocates separation, and there is a party that advocates association, because it seems to me there's a really interesting dynamic at play in the American church where we're answering what does it look like to be the people of God when we're not in power, whatever that looks like, or favor? And in the Jewish discussions of Jesus' day, do we withdraw? Do we use political means? Do we collaborate? That maybe the discussions they were having kind of speak into the discussions we're having too. Because the darker things get, the more it seems like in fear, we just want to hole up in our own Christian subculture, where it's safe for the whole family. And it's very easy to come across folks who spend absolutely no time, unless they're forced to by work or school, cultivating deep relationships with people who use words that aren't the normal words and who live a lifestyle that is a bit messier than my lifestyle. And I wonder if a passage like this summons us into an understanding of holiness that is a bit at odds with our desire just to withdraw and lob truth bombs over the fence of our fortress. See, how often are you mixing it up with folks that just aren't like you? What I love about Dan and Kim's story is it's the extension of hospitality in, a, in an indiscriminate way. How do we call non Christians to repentance? How do we do it? Do we withdraw and just throw things at them? Or do you mix it up for the sake of calling to repentance? Now, see, there are some differences, and I do believe there are times we separate out. I can't go into some situations because I will stumble. So do we separate? Do we associate? Well, it's a bit of both. There are times to blend in. There are times to stand out. But my experience is that it's just so natural to bend your whole life around my Christian crew and just sit back and critique. So let me ask you a question. Who would Jesus eat with today that would surprise us? Who to eat with? Group participation time. Wake up. Right of Leviticus. Lady Gaga, Gaga, yes. (laughs) Nice meat dress, he would say to her. He would eat share a meal with Lady Gaga. Absolutely, yes, young lady. Oh, you gotta say that louder. Yes, the gay and lesbian and transgendered community. One of the questions I often get these days is, hey, I have a brother, sister, mother, friend, uncle, cousin. They're having a gay wedding. Should I go? And the two sides of it are, well, I don't want to validate. And so there's a separation impulse. But then there's the, they're my family. And we're called to be in relationship, the association impulse. And so... A couple of small groups I'm in. We've had very fascinating conversations. Would Jesus go to a gay wedding? Yeah. Oh, and the people of God wrestle. <laughs> Was Jesus calling all to repentance? Yeah. Yep. And how did he do it? By associating with sinners. Jesus is able to keep two things together that we have a, such a hard time holding in tension indiscriminate ahead of time grace as a summons to repentance so my personal opinion is oh yeah oh yeah if the taliban invited him to dinner he'd go who else justin bieber Bieber. (laughs) yep sweet biebs yes what Okay, K-K-K. Yes, racists. Absolutely. Don Sterling. He'd hang out with Donald Sterling. Absolutely. Who else? Adult entertainment. Entertainment. All of our entertainment celebrities. Adult, adult, entertainment. adult entertainment industry. Oh, man, absolutely. Jesus scandalized by hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Yes, what else? Us. Atheists? Absolutely. Us. Yes this is good news for us right because isn't it interesting the minute you think of the sinners jesus would hang with our first thought is somebody else (laughs) right i i just think it's awesome that he'd eat with me because i'm screwed up i'm an outcast see i know my sin i can just see the outside of other people but i know my inside so the great news, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done, if you showed the slightest inclination, Jesus would share meal with you, he would proclaim and embody the good news of the kingdom, that his holiness trumps your impurity. End of story. And you'd believe him, because he'd sit with you first and summon you to repentance. And there'd be a whole bunch of us Who would drop it all without a second thought and we'd throw a party? I can't believe it's that good. I cannot believe it's that good. So are we good news people? We are. And we struggle to be. So men and women, close your eyes for just a second. I think we got the point. The work that Jesus is doing would surprise us as much today as it did for the religious leadership back then. And I dare say that we would want to be people who would be open to whatever it is He would do and wherever it is He would call us. And so, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us. As Jonathan prayed earlier, so I now pray. Would you increase in this place? And would we be known as people of indiscriminate love and grace? as a means to call the nations to repentance. And so, Father, we need you for that. Our, all of our situations are messier. They don't fit in nice yes or no labels and categories. So, Holy Spirit, lead us. We pray. Amen.